Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Once again, that's Philippians 3, 4 through 11. What do you want in this life? And by that I mean, what is it that you truly desire? We all have desires, we all have wishes, dreams, goals, and at times these desires will conflict with each other and force us to choose the one thing we truly desire, the thing we value most, over the other. What I want to know is, what do you want the most? Is there something that you want that you would sacrifice absolutely everything else in your life to gain? Edward Windsor once knew the answer to that question, and it was Mrs. Wallace Simpson. Born in 1894, Edward was the eldest son of King George V, meaning that from his youth, Edward was destined to one day become king of what was at that time still one of the most powerful empires on the planet, the United Kingdom. And then he met Mrs. Wallace Simpson. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, Mrs. Simpson was the wife of an American-born uh, British shipbroker. Handsome and incredibly wealthy and powerful and famous, one presumes that Edward could easily have chosen a wife from among the thousands upon thousands of eligible bachelorettes residing in the UK at that time. But Edward didn't fall in love with any of them. He fell in love with Mrs. Wallace Simpson. The issue finally came to a head when Prince Edward of Wales finally became King Edward VIII on January 20th, 1936. Though the nation had high hopes for Edward, it soon became apparent that he was distracted. He consistently showed up late to scheduled events or not at all. He was slow to answer government business. State papers were, that were sent for his review would go weeks before being returned and sometimes without ever having been examined. In short, it seemed as if Edward was not entirely interested in being monarch of the British Empire. And everyone close to him knew the reason why. It was because of his infatuation with Mrs. Simpson. The government finally had enough. One day, Edward's private secretary notified him that the press was not going to stay silent about his affair for much longer and that the government might even resign en masse if the affair continued. This meant that Edward was faced with a choice. He could either try to marry Mrs. Simpson or he could end the relationship altogether. The only problem is that divorce didn't carry the same kind of social stigma back in 1936 as it does Today, divorce is more or less an accepted reality in today's society. That was not so in 1936, and most especially not with respect to a position that's based on the concept of hereditary rule. You add this to the fact that the King of England is also technically the head of the Church of England, and it meant that there were serious objections about the notion that the King of England could marry a divorced woman, and a divorced woman who is actually still married, no less. And so the decision that Edward had to make was not simply between marrying Mrs. Simpson or putting an end to the affair. 
It was actually a choice between marrying Mrs. Simpson and remaining the king of England. He could either have England or he could have Mrs. Simpson. But he couldn't have both. He had to choose which he wanted more. And you know what? For Edward, the choice wasn't even that difficult. He tried to figure out a way that he could have both. But once it became apparent that he had to choose, he chose Mrs. Simpson. And he abdicated his throne. In total, he was king of England for less than a year. Edward gave up his power, gave up his status, gave up his estates, all so that he could spend the rest of his life with the woman he loved. In fact, though he probably didn't realize it at the time, he actually gave up even more than this. Because shortly after they were married, the freshly minted Duke and Duchess of Windsor were actually sent into exile. And due to a number of different circumstances, they were actually never allowed to return to England again. Edward would eventually die in France after 35 years of exile from his homeland. Now, I doubt that anyone in here right, would approve of the circumstances surrounding that marriage. But you have to admit, that is some serious dedication, is it not? I mean, I know they say you can't put a price on love, but from what Edward was willing to give up, we have a pretty good idea of just how much he loved Wallace Simpson. She was worth more to him than all of England. That's what I'm after when I ask you this question. What do you love more than anything else? What do you want so much that you would literally surrender everything else just to have it? The Apostle Paul had his own answer to that question. And in this morning's passage, we're going to find out what it is. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read the passage together. Once again, it's Philippians 3, 4 through 11. But for the sake of context, we're going to begin our reading up in verse 1. So Philippians 3, 1 through 11, focusing our attention starting in verse 4. Paul writes this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." The title of our series in Philippians is The Evangelistic Psyche. And the purpose of this series is to explore the mindset of the evangelist. Of course, we've all been called to serve as witnesses to the gospel. We've all been called to proclaim Christ. The problem is that not many of us engage this mission very well. 
then it's probably not due to ability per se. It probably has more to do with motivation. We don't tell others about Jesus, not because we don't know how, but because it's not important enough. It's not a priority for us. Well, when Paul writes the words that we read just a moment ago, he's sitting under house arrest in Rome, all for the sake of the gospel. He's just received a financial gift from the Philippians who've heard about his circumstances in Rome. And after learning that they too are suffering for the faith, Paul writes to encourage them to stand firm with him for the sake of the gospel. All in all, what this means is that in this letter, we learn from arguably the second greatest evangelist who ever lived what kind of motivations drive the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has provided a missionary report, or a report uh, wherein he explains his current circumstances, his present frame of mind, and his plans to come and visit Philippi just as soon as he's released. Starting towards the end of chapter 1, he then turns his attention to the Philippians. It would appear the church has begun to crack under the pressure of the persecution that they themselves are experiencing. Essentially, it would seem as if the church is beginning to blame one another for their suffering. And this is not only going to weaken their resolve, but even more importantly, it dishonors Christ. And so through the end of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, he exhorts the church to face this threat with a united front. As we come to chapter 3, we learn that the Philippians are perhaps beginning to crack, not just relationally, but doctrinally as well. Some are apparently considering the adoption of circumcision. The reasons for this consideration aren't entirely apparent, but the most likely scenario is that it's a kind of compromise. There doesn't seem to be anything in the context to indicate that the Philippians on the verge, are on the verge of departing to faith just yet, so it's not as if they're looking to abandon Christ in favor of pursuing salvation through adherence to the law of Moses or something like that. Rather, the issue is likely that if the Philippians adopt circumcision, then this would probably afford them certain legal protections which would help them escape their present suffering. And that's not to say that they're not sincerely questioning the legitimacy of circumcision. As I've indicated over the past several weeks, I think they are. I believe their struggle on this issue is quite sincere. I'm just saying I think it's still prompted by the fact that there's something to gain if this is a legitimate practice. Paul sees this compromise taking place, and he heads off this threat to the church's doctrinal integrity by challenging the spiritual authority of those who are introducing this idea to the church. Basically, the, the Philippians are beginning to consider this option because it's the position held by most of Israel. And they see Israel as a legitimate source of spiritual authority. They're then wondering if the practice of circumcision is also legitimate. Paul heads that line of thinking off by saying, actually, not all of Israel is a legitimate source of spiritual truth. And then, of course, he provides these three proofs that demonstrate his point. And that's where we've spent the past five weeks. We've been exploring the bare minimum threshold for spiritual authority outlined by Paul in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Now, in this morning's passage, Paul turns his attention squarely to the root issue behind this whole spirit of compromise even the root issue behind the disunity that's emerging in the church. And that's the Philippians' attitude towards suffering. The Philippians see suffering as something bad, and that's not the way Paul understands suffering. There's a kind of blessing in suffering that the Philippians can't see. And by the end of today's passage, Paul wants them to understand it.
Overall, the point of today's passage is to motivate the Philippians to stand firm and to hang on to the faith and persevere in spite of the pain. And the way Paul encourages them to do this is by pointing them to the kind of thinking that motivates him to persevere through his own suffering. There are, there are certain doctrinal realities that have shaped Paul's understanding of his suffering, and he wants to share this way of thinking with them so they'll join him in standing firm for the gospel. Honestly, it's a rather fascinating line of thinking, which I think can completely transform the way you look at suffering for the cause of Christ. I think this is probably the single biggest obstacle to evangelism. We don't share our faith because of the pain we experience when we proclaim Christ. Well, my hope is that this passage is going to transform your understanding of that topic and to the point that you'll start to see the pain not as an obstacle, but as a tremendous blessing. I've entitled this message, or I should, should say messages, because we're going to tackle this in two parts. And I've entitled both messages, When Loss is Gain, because that's the basic concept behind Paul's thinking. Like Edward VIII, there's something that Paul wants something that he's striving for. And the reason he's willing to suffer so much is because of how badly he wants to get it. Like Edward's love for Wallace Simpson, there's really no price that Paul won't pay to get what he's after. That's why he keeps going. That's why he keeps hanging on, even when it costs him so much. Now, I've really struggled with how to present the, the, the logic in Paul's thinking here because what Paul is saying here is very specific and the progression is actually sort of awkward. And so at the end of the day, the best solution I could come up with is just to sort of outline this passage in three, three points. And that's Paul's status, Paul's exchange, and Paul's perspective. Once again, that's Paul's status, Paul's exchange, and Paul's perspective. And through this progression, Paul is going to change the way we look at suffering for the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at the first two of these points, and then we'll come back and look at the third next week. Let's go ahead and begin with Paul's status. That occurs in verses 4 and four through 6. Paul points out in verse 3 that the true circumcision, meaning the portion of Israel which is the legitimate steward of the mysteries of God, worships by the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus, and puts no confidence in the flesh. Now, starting in verse 4, Paul adds as a kind of counter, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's sort of an interesting statement what Paul makes here. You can tell from the way that Paul speaks of this term flesh here, he's not referring to man's sin nature in this instance so much as he is to external appearances. In other words, Paul will sometimes use this term sarks or flesh differently depending on the context. You have passages like Galatians 5, 16 to 17, for instance, where Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He then goes on to speak of the deeds of the flesh. He compares them with the fruit of the Spirit. And he concludes verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. 
in context, that would seem to be a reference to our fallen nature. It's the part of us that has sinful passions and desires, which we must metaphorically crucify, and it's set in opposition to the work of the Spirit who's given to us so that we might walk in the commands of God. This all seems to be a reference to the natural condition that we inherit from Adam, which is bent towards sin. Then you have passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 14-17, where Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The emphasis there seems to be on external appearances. Paul is saying that Jesus has died for all peoples, and so as where at one time there was this distinction that was made between the Jew and the Gentile and so on, with one being superior to the other and such, that the cross has nullified that distinction, and so he makes this distinction no more. From the context, you can see which of these two uses of this phrase flesh Paul is referring to. He immediately goes to his heritage as an Israelite and his performance under the law, and the idea is that he's not talking about our sin nature. He's talking about credentials, about status. If you look here, there are basically two categories for Paul's possible boasting. First, there's Paul's ethnic status. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning he's not a Gentile convert. No, he's a part of the people of Israel, meaning he is a part of the people who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. If you stop to think about that, that's some weighty stuff right there. Uh, you know, lots of people are patriotic. Lots of people think their nation is special in some way because it makes them feel special. Well, Israel actually is special. The Bible says that they're God's chosen people and that God has a particular plan and purpose in store for that people. Think about that for a minute. Think about all that you believe about the Bible through Christ and then think about what it would be like to be a Jew and to realize that you were born into God's chosen race. I think that'd make you feel pretty special, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm sure many of you feel special to have been born in America. After all, we have the most powerful military on the planet, one of the strongest economies, an incredibly rich heritage. Maybe your family originally came from a country with an even richer historical heritage and you take pride in that. Now imagine you're an Israelite and your lineage goes back to Abraham. And your great, 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 etc. grandparents were there when Moses brought the people out of Egypt. Oh, that would start to make you feel pretty special, wouldn't it? And that's Paul's point. At one time, it made him feel pretty special too. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on saying that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. When Israel split in two into the northern and southern kingdoms, only one tribe stuck with the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the Davidic kings, and that was the tribe of Benjamin. And in fact, Jerusalem is located within Benjamin's borders. So Paul's not some kind of Samaritan or something like that. No, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews meaning he's an Israelite through and through. This would be like someone saying, I'm not just an American. My family came in on the Mayflower. 
That's what Paul is getting at here when he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying his blood is as pure as it gets. Second, Paul points to his adherence to the Mosaic Law. He notes that he was a Pharisee. The name Pharisee means separated one, and it describes the extreme dedication of this branch of Judaism. The Pharisees were widely respected for the fact that they took the Word of God incredibly seriously. So how righteous was Paul? Well, first, he was a persecutor of the church, meaning he was in no way indifferent about his beliefs. Instead, he even actively attempted to extinguish those who were leading his country ministry. Second, with respect to the law, he was blameless. By that, Paul doesn't mean that he was sinless. He just means that no one was able to bring any serious objections to his performance. He was as strenuous in his performance as anyone. Combined, the idea is that Paul possessed the kind of credentials that could rival anyone. If God's favor is based on ethnicity, if it's based on one's descent from Abraham then Paul's got that covered. And if it's based on performance, if it's based on one's obedience to Moses, then Paul's got that covered too. And again, that's interesting because Paul just said that the true Jew doesn't boast in any of that. And then he says, but you know, if I wanted to, I really could. I could if I wanted to. That's strange. If there's no reason to boast in the flesh, then why even bother making that statement? What's the point? I think there are probably a couple ways we could answer this. On the one hand, Paul probably wants to reassure the Philippians that it's not as if he's a Christian just because he couldn't hack it as a Jew. Like Paul is telling the Gentiles, they don't have to keep the law. He's saying that salvation occurs outside the law. But that's not because keeping the law was just too hard for Paul. People do this all the time. They fail at something, and then to protect their ego, they say to themselves, well, I didn't really want to do that anyways. It's not that important. I don't agree with it. Some might even be tempted to make that sort of an argument about Paul. They might say he's just making, saying salvation is by grace through faith because he's a weak Jew. And Paul shuts that line of argument right down. He says, look, understand If anyone was going to be saved by the law, it was going to be me. I had it all going for me in that respect when I walk away. It's not like I embraced Christ by necessity. I wasn't a Matthew Levi or something like that. And Paul's making this point to compare himself with these unclean dogs, which he notes back in verse 2, are trying to trouble the Philippians. If the right interpretation of the law comes down to credentials, then Paul can hang with the best of them. And he wants the Philippians to remember that so they're not swayed by these apparent credentials, uh, the apparent credentials of these opponents on this matter of circumcision. That's one reason why Paul would go from saying, true Israel doesn't boast in the flesh, to, but if I wanted to, I could. He's telling the Philippians, and if your problem is that you're impressed by the number of letters after a person's name, just remember I've got more. They're not half the Jew I am. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the law. However, I don't think that's the main reason Paul does this. Rather, I think the main reason is because having dispatched the threat of compromise, Paul is now turning his attention to the root issue behind this spirit of compromise, and that's the Philippians' attitude towards suffering. The Philippians think that suffering is bad. That's why they're trying to avoid it. 
Paul doesn't necessarily see it that way. There's some good in the suffering. And that's why he's so willing to persevere for the faith, and they're not. It's coming out of their perspectives on suffering. And so now that the error behind the compromise has been clearly identified, Paul is saying the real problem is that you're thinking about suffering like this, and you need to be thinking about it like this. And of course, he points to his own example as he does this. You see this come, down, uh, come out down in verse 15, which is really the conclusion of this section. I know we read through verse 11, but we could have easily kept going through verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That captures the purpose of this entire section of the letter. Paul is telling the Philippians, don't shrink back, keep hanging on. And he's telling them that the way they'll do this is by adopting the pattern of thought that they see in him. It's by following his example. So what's the pattern of thought that's enabling Paul to suffer so greatly for the gospel? Well, it starts up here in verse 4, where Paul talks about the status he once enjoyed before he became a Christian. It's probably easy to forget, as Paul sits in, under house arrest in Rome, but life wasn't always like this for Paul. I mean, by external appearances, Paul's really got nothing going for him. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's about to stand trial before the most powerful king on the planet. He has no freedom, no respect. Right? His own countrymen put him here. He's despised among his own people. He's so poor that he's left to rely on the kindness of friends like the Philippians to survive. By external appearances, Paul doesn't look like much. In fact, he kind of looks like a loser. Not many would choose the life of the Apostle Paul. But that's just the point. Paul did choose this. And he wants the Philippians to understand why. There's something that's driving him, something that's motivating him to hang on to Christ, even though it's cost him all this. And Paul wants the Philippians to understand the value of that prize so they'll endure the hardship with him. And so to illustrate the surpassing greatness of what Paul's after and how it's worth suffering for, Paul begins here with where he started, with what he once had. Essentially, the Philippians see Paul in rags, and from that, it's easy to think that Paul is poor. But this isn't some hard luck story where Paul once had everything and through his own foolishness squandered it all away. Instead, the point is that Paul voluntarily surrendered these other things in order to gain something else, something more valuable than everything he had before. So Paul's not actually poor. He's incredibly wealthy because of what he's gaining through the loss of these other things. This other thing is worth more than all of that. And Paul wants them to understand this because that's what's keeping him going. The great reward, the great price of this thing he's seeking out, that's what's making him endure. And so Paul begins with what he once had, and the point is to say to the Philippians, I want you to understand, I was once king of England. But I didn't lose my throne. I abdicated it. I surrendered it. 
Now let me tell you why. Because if someone is going to willingly give up something as valuable as that, it must be because of something else that's somehow worth even more. This is the main reason why Paul's talking about his status. He's transitioning into this discussion about the kind of thinking that enables him to persevere without compromise so that the Philippians join him in his suffering. That's a discussion that's built around the worth of what's gained through suffering. And so Paul sets up this discussion by telling the Philippians, I once wasn't like this. Believe it or not, there was a time when I was one of Israel's rising stars. I had respect. I had status. If there was anything to boast in among my people, it was mine. I was among Israel's elite. Now, let me tell you why I gave it all away. And this leads us into the second point in our outline. Paul's exchange. Paul's exchange. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you notice, there's a progression that occurs here in verses 7 through 8, which Paul uses for rhetorical effect. Three different times, Paul talks about counting something loss for the sake of Christ, but each time he increases the intensity of the statement just a little bit. First, he says, verse 7, with respect to the status he once enjoyed, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's, there's actually a pronoun in the second half of that verse in the ESV, uh, which the, or, I'm sorry, that the ESV doesn't bring out. It should read, but whatever gain I had, these I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, pointing back to the list of items that Paul just listed off. The words for loss here is a commercial term, as is the term for gain, keredos, which is, can actually mean something like assets. You can almost picture a business ledger, where Paul is totaling up his assets and entering them into the loss column as he starts to shut his business down. In this respect, I think the NET Bible captures the imagery well. It says, but these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. In this first statement, Paul seems to be talking about the status he once enjoyed, or rather he thought he enjoyed, before God when he boasted in his flesh. Again, Paul was once a Hebrew of Hebrews, and so he thought he earned a right standing before God through all these things, just like the rest of Israel. As Paul has come to know Christ, as he's come to realize, as we stated above, that the Bible tells us that we can put no confidence in the flesh since salvation occurs through grace, from God alone, he's come to realize that these assets are actually liabilities. Because the more one trusts in their own flesh, the less they're inclined to trust in the real source of redemption, which is Christ. Meaning, Paul understands that not only is this status actually worthless before God, but it's even a stumbling block on the path to genuine righteousness. So Paul's appraisal of these items has shifted. Whereas he once boasted in these things because of how much worth he thought he had in them, he now realizes it's all worthless. And he transfers it over into the lost column. 
It's kind of like how the government will allow you to claim a tax deduction. If you're operating at a net loss in your business for the year, that's what Paul's doing here. He's realizing that he's operated at a loss, and so he's claiming that loss to gain the benefit that's offered in Christ. Second, in this first half of verse 8, Paul makes this transition into the discussion of perseverance complete by pivoting away from the discussion of his status before God with respect to righteousness and into a discussion of everything else that he's lost for the sake of Christ. Again, Paul didn't just lose his self-righteousness, he lost the esteem he once had as a Pharisee. He lost his freedom as he sits under house arrest in Rome. He's lost his personal well-being, his comfort. As we saw back in chapter 1, he's even prepared for the possibility that he may lose his very life for the sake of Christ. That comes out in verse 8. As Paul says, indeed, meaning even more than this, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So we're no longer talking about the these things from back in verses 4 through uh, 6. Now we're talking about everything. And Paul says that if necessary, he's willing to count those things as loss as well. In the second half of verse 8, we, just see, we see just how serious Paul is with this third repetition of the concept. He says, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The have suffered in this statement, that phrase have suffered, is passive. And it indicates the persecution that Paul has experienced for the gospel. It means that this isn't something that Paul has done to himself. Paul is now an outcast from Israel, but it's not because he's turned his back on his kinsmen. It's not because he's rejected Israel. It's because Israel has rejected him and cast him out. It's the same with the conflict that he's going through. He didn't try to provoke Caesar. He didn't seek out the persecution he's experiencing, but it came to him nonetheless. So how does Paul feel about all that? If he didn't turn his back on all these things, these former comforts, if they were taken from him, then is he sore about what happened to him? Not in the slightest. Again, he intensifies his statement. It's not just that he's counted them loss, like he does in verse 7 in the first half of verse 8. He actually counts them as rubbish. The word here is scubalong. And as every pastor likes to point out, every time this passage is preached, it means something like refuse or even dung. It's kind of a coarse word, actually. Like, I don't know about you, but when I think of rubbish, I think of maybe the stuff that we're selling at our, we were selling at our garage sale over the weekend. It's stuff that I don't really care about anymore. It's junk. Scubalong is stronger than that. The rubbish that you sell at a garage sale still has some value to it. That's why you can sell it. That's not what scubalong is. Scubalong refers to the moldy coffee ground covered banana peel at the bottom of your trash bag. It's the three-day-old dirty diaper rotting out in your garbage bin. You can stick that out on a table and slap a sticker on it, 25 cents. No one's buying it, right? Because it's trash. That's what scubalong is. In fact, linguists think this term came from shortening up a phrase that means that which is thrown to the dogs. Basically, the leftovers from your meal that aren't fit for human consumption, that's scubalong. 
Paul says that by his estimation, not only his former self-righteousness, but really all things have become that in his eyes when compared to knowing Christ. So again, it's not as if Paul can't appreciate some of the comforts he had before, that he thinks it's gross or something like that. It's just that the gap between those things and what he has in Christ is so great that it's as if they have no value at all whatsoever. The point is that the contest isn't even close. It's not a hard decision to make. It's as if Paul, or, or it's as if God is saying to Paul, I'll trade you the entire continent of Europe for that half-eaten turkey sandwich in your hand. And Paul's going, absolutely. Where do I sign for that kind of a deal? This is a no-brainer for Paul. Now, that's saying something because Paul isn't talking about a half-eaten turkey sandwich. He's talking about the universal respect and esteem of his peers. He's talking about the ability to just walk out of the house and go wherever he wants in Rome, wherever he wants in the world. He's talking about life itself, not dying. Paul says, in comparison with what I'm getting, even my own life is scuba long. I'm sorry, but that's a pretty bold statement. What could be worth so much to Paul that by comparison, his own life is the equivalent of a moldy banana peel? The short answer, of course, is Christ. Paul couldn't be more emphatic about that point. He, reports, he repeats it four different times. Verse 7, he says it's for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, he speaks of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In the second half of verse 8, he notes it, he notes it twice, saying he suffers loss, quote, for his sake, before then saying again that he counts everything rubbish, quote, in order that I may gain Christ. So Jesus is the short answer to this question. But if you look at the beginning of verse 9, Paul says, and. He says, in order that I may gain Christ, and. And this is where he gets into, de into detail about why he's seeking Christ, why he values Christ so much, and that's where we discover what's driving Paul to suffer loss for Christ. Again, end of verse 8 and end of verse 9. Paul says, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. What's Paul saying here? Well, typically it's said that Paul's referring to the concept of imputation. In case you aren't familiar with that terminology, imputation refers to the idea that when the Christian believes in Christ, all of Christ's obedience is assigned or imputed to them, so that when God looks upon the Christian, He looks at them as if they had performed all the acts of obedience that Christ performed. That's the great exchange that takes place in Christ. He assumes our debt and we inherit his riches. You see the concept of imputation occur in passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness in that context is what we call a forensic or judicial righteousness. It's the righteousness by which God, as judge, declares us righteous in the act of justification. The concept of imputation is definitely a biblical concept, 
And I think it's definitely in this passage. But I have to tell you, the more I've looked at this passage, the more I'm not sure that this is what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I know that probably seems crazy. I mean, Paul clearly indicates that this righteousness is not his own, that it comes from God. And he says it depends on faith and not the law. That seems like a classic description of imputation, and most especially in light of what Paul was just saying in context about not boasting in the flesh. It seems like Paul's saying in Christ he gets a righteous standing before God that he can never get through his performance to the law. So he's rejected his performance, counted it as loss in favor of receiving the righteous standing that he gains through Christ's performance. The problem that starts to emerge, however, is that as Paul continues this statement, it's fairly apparent that he's not talking about that kind of righteousness. I'll explain what I mean in greater detail next week as we get into Paul's perspective in verses 10 and 11, because it's sort of hard to describe now without the statements that Paul makes there. But suffice to say for the moment, Paul talks about striving to attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He, said, he doesn't just say that he hasn't yet attained the resurrection. He says that he isn't yet perfect either. And for Paul to say that makes it seem like he's not talking about the forensic righteousness that we receive in Christ the moment we believe. We are considered perfect the moment we believe in Christ in that sense because all the righteous, all of that righteousness is based on Christ, Christ's past obedience, meaning it's already completed. There's no more filling up that must take place with respect to that kind of righteousness. But here Paul indicates that he's not yet perfect. And that would seem to indicate that the righteousness he's referring to is not the forensic righteousness that he's received in Christ, but rather the active righteousness that Christ is producing in Paul through Paul's obedience. And in fact, this thought seems to be confirmed by the only other occurrence of this term righteousness in this epistle. That happens over in chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul talks about praying that the Philippians would be, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Back when we were in chapter 1, I pointed out that this is a reference to the Philippians' performance. They are doing the deeds of righteousness, and this righteousness is coming from Jesus Christ, meaning He's empowering it. It's coming through their faith in Christ by the power of the Spirit whom He has given to them, and that's why, end of verse 11, God gets the glory for it. God gets the credit for the Philippians' performance because their performance isn't something that they've done by their own power. It isn't something they've done in their flesh that is according to their natural condition. Instead, it's a performance that's been given to them by God. People sometimes miss this point. They forget that Paul was not only intent on the fact that the law had no ability to remove the penalty of sin, but that he was also intent on pointing out that it is ineffective in removing the power of sin. Romans 7 and 8 is probably the most famous example of this. Romans 7, Paul points out how the law can only reveal sin, 
but that it was powerless to prevent sin. And then he says, Romans 8, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And he goes on to explain that by sending his son and condemning sin in the flesh, God's made it so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, meaning we do it who walk in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Or to put it more succinctly, Paul says there, Romans 8, obedience to God comes through Jesus, not the law. Paul makes the same point in the book of Galatians. As the Galatians try to seek a justification through faith plus circumcision, Paul asks them rhetorically, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the point, of course, is no, they did not receive the Spirit through the works of the law. That's not where their obedience has come from. Rather, it's come by faith in Jesus, who gave them the Spirit freely. So no, adherence to the Mosaic Law is not needed for salvation, since the inheritance is obviously received by faith. Paul makes a similar statement in Colossians 2 as well, with respect to other kinds of religious asceticism. He says, why, as if you were, were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He says, these, ha these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And in context, his point is that that ability, the ability to stop the indulgence of the flesh, comes from Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It isn't religious prescriptions that sanctify a person, but faith in Jesus. Because only Jesus can, can supply the Spirit who puts to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8. And only faith in Jesus provides a hope sufficient for us to deny the flesh and be obedient to God, according to passages like Hebrews 11. So again, it's not just forensic righteousness that comes through Christ alone, imputed righteousness, but our own actual performance also comes from Christ alone, through faith. And what Paul is saying here is that he suffered the loss of all things in order to gain that kind of righteousness, this obedience to God that he could never attain through the law, but which is given to him in Christ alone. Now, that's sort of odd, I think. Why does Paul want that? Why is that so important to him? Is it because he thinks it's on the basis of his performance that he'll be credited as righteous and that Jesus then helps him gain that status before God? You know, like it's not his flesh that he should boast in, per se, because it's not a righteousness that's coming from him, and it's not even one that he's earning through his merit. It's a righteousness that comes from Jesus by grace, but it's a personal righteousness nonetheless which he'll be judged by. That's the Roman Catholic position. It says Jesus gives us the grace to be righteous, but that we'll still be judged by God based on the righteousness we possess ourselves and not on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. And I have to be honest with you, there was a moment when I started to panic a little bit once I saw what Paul was saying here because it almost sounds like that. But then I notice this phrase at the beginning of verse 8. 
and be found in him. Paul says he surrendered everything in order to gain Christ and be found in him. And if you look at the rest of verse 9, that's just describing what it means to be found in Jesus. The word for found here is hurisco, and it means to find or discover. And when it's stated in the passive, as it is here, it can even mean to be proved. That's how Paul uses it in Romans 7.10. He says that the very command that promised life proved, hurisco, to be death to him. Meaning that was the result. And the idea here seems to be that when judgment comes, Paul wants to be found, or he wants to be proved to be, in Jesus. This is where the doctrine of imputation comes from in this verse. Paul understands that righteousness comes through Jesus. He knows that he needs, the, he needs Christ's righteousness applied to him. And so when the judgment comes, he wants to be found in Christ because that's his only refuge. I want to make this point clear. The reason why Paul considers not just all things, but even most specifically these things, which he refers up to, uh, he refers, uh, to up in verses 4 through 6, the reason why he considers these things loss is because he wants to gain the imputed righteousness that's found only in Jesus Christ. He wants to be counted righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not his own. It's not just his comfort he's, advocated, he's abdicated, it's his self-righteousness too, all to be found in Christ. But how is this fact going to be, quote, discovered? found. How is Paul standing in Christ going to be proven? It's by this personal righteousness possessed by Paul, which has come not through Paul's efforts at obeying the law, but which has come through his faith in Jesus. Again, people often forget this point. Yes, justification is by grace through faith. And yet in Matthew 7, Jesus rejects the false professors of faith by saying, I never knew you. And note that, by the way, he doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. And he continues, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. And then as he explains how, he points to their deeds. How can that be? How can Jesus reject these individuals on the basis of their deeds if salvation is not by works? Again, it's right there in what Jesus tells them. Their lack of deeds is indicative of the fact that he never knew them. Look here in verse 12. After saying that he is not yet perfect, but that he keeps straining to make the resurrection his own, indicating that his performance, his perseverance in Christ has something to do with obtaining the resurrection of the dead. Paul says he does this. Why? Verse 12. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is Paul's point in Romans 8 as well. Christians aren't perfect. They still struggle against the flesh. But guess what the struggle indicates? It indicates they have the Holy Spirit. Paul calls this spirit the spirit of adoption, meaning it's the sign that God has included the believer in his family. That was actually Paul's point up in verse 3, was it not? 
the true circumcision, not only glory in Jesus Christ and take no confidence in the flesh, but what else? They also worship by the Spirit of God. That's why Paul wants this righteousness. That's why he'll lose everything in order to have that kind of righteousness in his life. It's not because he thinks there's any merit in this righteousness. Paul understands that justification occurs through the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. Rather, it's because that righteousness indicates that he's in Christ. Meaning that righteousness points to the fact that Christ's righteousness has been applied to him. It's evidence to the fact that Paul is in Christ. And that fills Paul with tremendous hope. Now, why? Why does this fill Paul with hope? And how does all of that affect Paul's understanding of suffering? And this is where we're just getting started. Uh, this is where we're going to have to come back and look in greater detail next week at what Paul means about all that as we explore Paul's perspective in verses 10 and 11. And again, I think this is where it gets really, really interesting as we dig deeper and deeper down into this verse. Paul has some insight here that will not only transform the way that we think of suffering, but I tell you, it's going to change the way we understand something even as foundational as the resurrection. That's kind of appropriate, is it not? I'll tell you, Philippians is batting two for two here. I didn't have to plan a Christmas message because we hit Paul's passage on the Incarnation right on time. And now I don't have to plan an Easter message, right? Because Paul's going to talk about the resurrection's impact on his life next week on Easter Sunday. In the meantime, to sort of prepare you for that message, the thing that I would have you note here is how Paul understands the doctrine of the Christian's union with Christ. That's what Paul's after here. He wants to be found in Christ. Typically, when we think of that concept, we think of the doctrine of imputation. The Christian's union with Christ means that he assumes our debts and we inherit his righteousness. Just like a husband will assume his wife's financial state, good or bad, and vice versa, right? When they marry, the two accounts become one. So also is the believer's account before God joined with Christ's through faith. That's partly what union with Christ means. But that's not the only thing that union with Christ means. It also means that Christ lives in us. And over time, we begin to resemble Him in our righteousness. Again, this is what Paul is after when he talks of being found in Him on the basis of this righteousness. He's saying it's on the basis of this increasing resemblance that Christ will one day look at Him and say, Ah, yes, I did know you. There's no question about that. And it's on the basis of this thought that I'm going to close this morning with two brief parting shots. One's a warning and the other's an encouragement. First, the warning. Based on what we've seen here today, do you think that Christ knows you? I want you to understand what I'm asking here. I'm not talking about perfection. Paul says later on that even he is not perfect. And yet he still has confidence that Christ has made him his own. Where's that confidence coming from? It's coming out from the righteousness that's spilling out of his life. Now, we haven't gotten into great detail about what that righteousness looks like just yet. We'll actually get a better picture of it next week. But suffice to say, for the moment, it's this increasing conformity 
to Jesus Christ. So is that happening in your life? Do you look more and more like Jesus? Because if not, if there's not some measure of Christ-likeness in you, then it's probably hard to say that you're in union with Christ. It's hard to say that Christ knows you. And if you're not in union with Christ, then it doesn't matter what you claim about your relationship to Jesus. His sacrifice does not cover you. You are not in Him, and that's evidenced by the fact that He is not working out His righteousness in you. If that is you, don't despair. Salvation is by grace through faith, and the righteousness that, righteousness that Paul is describing here, it comes through faith. And so all you must do is ask Jesus to make his home with you, to abide with you, to dwell in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will do it. It's like what Jesus says, Luke 11, 11 to 13. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The only thing you have to do to be placed in Christ by faith is to ask. Pray that God would forgive you of your sin and place you in Christ. And all the righteousness that we're talking about, which proves faith, that will follow. Now the encouragement. If you do see that increase in righteousness taking place, again, not perfection, but just that steady growth, in conformity with Christ, then it means that you are in Him. And if you are in Him, it doesn't matter what sins you have performed or will perform, you're forgiven because the blood of Christ cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Christ has taken on your debt, and now when God looks on you, He looks on you as if you have performed the perfect obedience of His Son. It means you're accepted by God and forgiven. And if this is true of you, and I trust that it is, then it means that the riches you now possess in Christ far, far outweigh any other treasure that you could gain in this world. All the suffering that you may have to endure for the sake of being in Him is well worth it because of how much you've gained through Him. So just what is that treasure? What is that reward, that gain? That's what we're going to explore in greater detail, verses 10 and 11 next week. Let's pray.